The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in June 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we say hello to Douglas Carter Bean. Hi, Doug. Well, hello. It's great to meet you guys. I'd like to just uh, do a few words out of Playbill, your bio. Mm. Currently running on Broadway a show called Xanadu, which we'll get into in a moment a Broadway version of the Xanadu. Previously, The Little Dog Laugh, for which you received a Tony nomination for your writing. Also, As Bees in Honey Drown, for which you received the Outer Critics Circle Gassner Award. Other shows including Music from a Sparkling Planet, The Country Club, Advice from a Caterpillar, The Cartels, and the upcoming show, Mr. and Mrs. Fitch. Also, the film, the movie, Chu Wang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. And also, Artistic Director of the Drama Department, where you've produced more than 40 productions, and you were one of the founders of that. We'll get into all of that, but first, let's talk about Xanadu. Oh, my goodness. I just sound so <laughs> prolific. I need a nap. I need a massage. Well, Xanadu, of course, is known <laughs> yeah. as a motion picture in 1980, which starred Olivia Newton-John. To say it was not critically acclaimed is an understatement. It's been considered kind of a box office disaster, kind I of a I think bomb. it's considered by many aficionados one of the worst films ever made. I, of course, was immediately drawn to it uh, because well, why, it was why, so why, bad. Why, why were you drawn to it? Well, I mean, you know, because I've kind of cut my teeth on postmodernism, so anything really horrible uh-huh. I immediately try to find the art in. Uh, I, I sort of vaguely recall it coming out when I, was, when I was a kid. I remember the album was really more popular. And I was fascinated with our current theatrical infatuations with putting movies on stage and the idea of taking the worst movie ever and putting it on stage was irresistible to me. But you say you were drawn to it. One article that I read said that the producer who cleared all of these rights in order to make this go forward had to had to pitch you on this yeah, a bit. This about... wasn't it wasn't you woke up one day oh, and no. said, I want to make a musical of Xanadu. No, I, I I had wanted to do something that was and now here's where we find the theater aficionados in the audience, <laughs> something like I Married an Angel or something like One Touch of Venus that was one of those uh classy, sophisticated uh, New York kind of musicals about someone from another world being trapped in the modern day. And I was actually, uh, the Christmas before I was offered this, I had actually asked all my friends and relatives to Christmas, for Christmas to give me books on mythology and Indian myths or <laughs> African African myths, anything, because I wanted to do something about that. So when they approached me, I passed many times because I just couldn't get past the 80s roller skating aspects of it and it wasn't until the last time I looked at it and I noticed that there were these sort of eight out of work Fosse dancers in the background <laughs> Sandal Bergman being one of them and uh, and I realized oh my god they're the nine muses I get it now I totally get that this could be a classical Greek mythology smashed up against uh, current day did you go back Pardon. to the original film with Rita Hayworth that supposedly this was adapted they, they from? They say it's ad- – I've seen Down to Earth on, on Turner Classic Movies and, and I taped it. And it's also a, a pretty bad movie. Uh, and I, it, they say it's a ripoff of it. I mean I don't quite know the complete beginnings of, of Xanadu, the film. Uh, I've spoken to a couple of – of the uh, original writers of it, but there was the cocaine use was so heavy at that period that no one is really clear what happened where and when. 
Um, someone said a beautiful chick was on Venice Beach on roller skates, that that was the inspiration for the entire film. Uh, there you go. And we're off. So, <laughs> that, But I did Down to Earth. Is, is a, the score is really bad, but Rita Hayworth is undeniably something special. Well, getting back to Xanadu, the movie now, Xanadu, the Broadway musical, uh, you said you were attracted to it because it, it was a bad movie. In fact, there's a line in your play toward the end. I may be quoting it slightly differently because I, I jotted this down quickly in the dark. Uh, they'll just take some stinkeroo movie and songwriter's catalog, throw it on a stage, and call it a show. Well, you've done far more than that. You've, you've totally <laughs> totally redone the movie using the music. I did, but- and I did, but, but then you could sort of say that that's been the last five years of Broadway and the next you're coming up or yeah. what I've just so I'm I'm tweaking I'm you know I'm having a little fun with with my with my cousins you know with well, my buddies and, yeah. and having a little fun I'm saying like it just strikes me as very funny that when I we started to do Xanadu people would get very highfalutin like how dare you do Xanadu and then they would go off to do a workshop of Little Mermaid like there is somehow this difference between this movie on stage and that movie on stage I, I meant to speak of all of Broadway at that mm-hmm. time, and I also meant to talk specifically about, about our show. And what you're doing in your show is kind of winking, kind of tongue-in-cheek, poking fun oh, at, yeah. oh, at yeah. theater and, and at the movie itself. I, I, we make fun. I'm, well, the idea when I, uh, when I started to write the draft that is what we went with, originally it was a very political uh, diatribe, me very angry at the early 80s, which everyone sort of was amused by, but nobody really cared that much about. What I really wanted to do was to take our current state of the theater, which would be putting a movie on stage with a songwriter's catalog, and take our very the very genesis of the very beginning of theater, which is the Greeks, and to take Greek theater and turn it into musical comedy and actually use the form, the structure, the language of of you know that which I love about Greek theater. So you do have people saying, would that I were a god, I would smite her, and that's our segue into evil woman. Well, for our <laughs> for our radio audience, which probably have not seen your show, it's, it's still running in previews here in New York, sure. and most people probably have not seen the movie Xanadu either. Can you just give us a real quick overview of what the storyline is? <laughs> I had a meeting with a with a Hollywood film producer, and they said, well, what do you think? He said, well, I'm doing Xanadu. And he said, what's the story of Xanadu? And I said, well, a muse from ancient Greece comes to Venice Beach, California in 1980 and inspires an artist to open a roller disco. And he responded, well, at that point, you're either in or out. And that's my <laughs> feeling of the show. you got to go with it or you don't. Well, you, you have Kerry Butler playing the role oh, that, great. that Olivia Newton-John played in the movie. She's a yeah. very pretty young blonde. Yeah, she's great. And she's a great comedian. That's the thing. It's, it's always... I always used to tease Julie White from Little Dog Laugh about this. I said, you know, when you find someone attractive who does comedy, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like you win the lottery. Because usually uh, attractive women especially have the comedy and irony beaten out of them. That when they come to audition, they have no sense of humor and no sense of making poking fun at themselves because it's not required of them. And if it is, it's not going to get them hired. Well, I'm, I'm saying especially in film and television. In the theater, we rejoice in it. We love it. Like a Paul Rudnick or a Nikki Silver or a 
you know, Wendy back in the day. I mean, my beloved Wendy Wasserstein, we, we would find them and we would dance in the streets because they're so wondrous. Well, she's kind of the, the prototypical California girl, uh, blonde in a little pink dress on roller skates, white roller skates with pink laces, and, and spends uh, most of the show on those roller skates. She does, indeed, spend the entire show on roller skates. And she's from Brooklyn, as all good California girls should be. <laughs> she's a Brooklyn girl. Uh, no, she's wonderful. And she does amazing uh, little... Shout-outs, nods, tricks of Olivia Newton-John, little inflections in her singing that the uh, drives the audience to craziness on a regular basis because she's because she's clever. She's clever. She comes in like if you give her a scene, she'll say, "Okay, here's the joke. Here, how can I build to it? And what's can be my particular take on it that's interesting and different from the usual bland take." It's kind of your typical boy meets muse tale where they fall in love. It is. I mean, it could be. It's like Splash. It's like Bewitched. It's like any of those. It's. It's. They call them, you know, fish out of water stories. You know, whatever. It's. It's. it's I always. It's. It's. I wanted to keep it as basic as possible, so that I could go off and go crazy with these mm-hmm. insane comments and have characters that could be in in a real legitimate moment, but also commenting on the state of the theater. And, and then you have the Broadway veteran Tony Roberts in the show. I love Tony Roberts. He's great. His voice. I, sometimes I just sit there and I just, there was a monologue I had to cut. And I said, Tony, I realized, he goes, why are you cutting it? And I said, I've been loving it for the last two weeks and it's not really good writing. I just love the sound of your voice. He just, <laughs> it, it, it brings me back to my, you know, childhood of listening to the cast album of Sugar, but also the movie of Annie Hall. And the, the, the male lead, James Carpinello, hurt his foot or his ankle. Yeah, so that, now- was, that was last Tuesday. It was like 4.45, just before an 8 o'clock show. They rehearse, and then for the last half hour, everyone's allowed just to skate, who has skating, just so they're warmed up, so no one has any accidents. And everyone had warmed up. They'd done the number, and he was just talking to everybody. And he was saying, oh, you know, you have to be really careful when you come down this ramp because if you go down on your foot like this, and he started banging his foot on the ground. If you bang on your foot like this, you could break it. I went, and then he fell, mm. and he went, oh, I broke my foot. And we all people were chuckling. <laughs> and he said, I said, no, I broke my foot. And we're like, and there was silence, and he, and he just screamed. And it was very scary. He has he broke his heel, and he broke his leg just below the knee. And just by banging it on a you know. The thing about roller skates is they're really dangerous. <laughs> I guess so. And now you have – he's out of the show, at least temporarily. You have uh, Cheyenne Jackson Cheyenne Jackson, in, yeah. Well, I mean, it's good. Who had been in the workshop. He did the workshop, and he couldn't do it because he had to go off for pilot season, so he couldn't do the rehearsals. So he's back, and he – we were very lucky is that when the word got out, uh, we had two really marvelous actors call and say, I'm here if you need me. And that was – I was very touched by that. Uh, people had seen the show in previews and really loved it a great deal. And it's going to take James, he had to have surgery on his foot. He had to pins put in. It's going to take him three months to heal, and it's going to take him a month of rehabilitation. Wow. I know. And just to get over the fear of the skates, I imagine it's going to be something, too. And, and now It'll because be of all this, you've had opening night delayed until July 10th. Now. I think they're the saying July 10th. Yeah. I just heard that about right. an hour ago. Likewise. Well, see, oh my God, we have the same source. So I think it was Judson was just made about an hour ago. So, glancingly, before you mentioned sort of where you started with writing Xanadu and kind of where it's ended up, the show had a couple of fairly public workshop presentations. It, it, I, I think I think that I think that Xanadu itself, either I'm in a weird place in my career, or people are actually watching what I'm doing. 
Whereas before, I would have to have a show running for a month before people would come around to see it. But now, like, I just, I basically have a reading and suddenly people are knowing about it. Either that's happening. I think a major part of it was Xanadu itself was so fascinating to people um, that it just became really, people were public, because it was such an audacious thing. And then when a decision was made for it to go to Broadway and not off-Broadway, that was a, that was a definite, like, flares went up. Well, as you were developing the show, first of all, at what point did Chris Ashley become involved, the director? Chris Ashley, when I, I finished my first draft, uh, the producer sat down and said, here are some uh, directors I was thinking of going to, and on the list was Chris Ashley. I said, you know, I've worked with Chris four times now. He's great. We totally get each other. And this is his, this is his trip. This is his deal. Like, he's going to get this. It's not going to be me saying, no, it'll be funny. Chris will know what's funny and not funny. And and he would get, I knew it would have a real warm, funny sensibility, which is what he always brings to his work. But since I saw one of those workshops and it was two acts and all kinds of characters yeah, who we had, uh, aren't we had, there. It was, the cast, it was also the nine, there were nine muses and all nine muses had stories. It had Katie Huffman, it had Billy Porter, it had it had nine star turns. The idea was it was nine huge musical theater stars going off. And like the muse of dance, which was Katie Huffman, met Twyla Tharp, played by an actor, and inspired her dance in 1980. And it was the muse of Mary Bond Davis from Hairspray was polyhymnia, the muse of religious uh, music. And she met uh, Tammy Faye Baker and uh, already saying it, it sounds so horrible. But it was a, like a fun idea at the time. But we did the reading that I believe you were in attendance of, and and it was a fascinating study. I would sit there and I would sit on the side and I would watch the audience laugh at all the jokes about the 1980s references, but they weren't engaged by it. I could see their physical bodies. They had their arms crossed. They leaned back. And the second we got up to the main love story, Everyone just leaned forward and was fascinated and, and couldn't get enough of it. And then I added uh, two of the muses doing hijinks on the couple, which is not in the in the movie at all. And that fascinated them. So it was sort of if you could stay to the main story and just spin off the main story a little bit, people like that. So then the second draft, that's what it became. And it's been it's been going great ever since. And now it's been whittled down to the single act, 90 minutes. So you can't have second act troubles with the one act I, show. That's, <laughs> that's, one, that's a great way of looking. We had no, we, that's right. We have no second act, so we couldn't go out of town and have trouble. I know. I always love when the Encores, which is this amazing series that we have here in New York. And I think most major cities are actually having their version of it. They have reprise or ovation, applause, standing ovation. I don't know what they call them, everything. Philadelphia will get one called like, you know. Clap at us. Um, but, but they have these where you actually get to see these musicals that really have no business having full productions, but you get to see them. And I always, about about a third of the way into the second act, I just smell desperation. People saying, can we bring that back? Can we reprise that song? How about this? Let's just add this character. How about acrobats? Anything to kind of keep it going. But in this show, obviously you were working within the constraint as you were creating largely a new piece of material out of something yeah, that I think there needed are 11, some there are 11 lines from the original movie left hmm. and one of and four of them are jokes that I'm actually making fun of hmm. 
But were you cons- you were constrained to some degree by the fact that you're working with the music of the Electric Light Orchestra, right? And the music of John Farrar, John Farrar who wrote all of those hits yeah. for Olivia Newton-John. Did you have? A broad catalog to choose from, or is this just material that was in the movie, or did you get well, to, that's, that's to very go any deeper about this? It was it was sort of the antithesis of a creative process, but from that, I just I just remember when I was in in theater school, I was with this uh, the American Academy. There was just a marvelous uh, teacher there named Thelma Louise Carter, who's since passed on, and she was a great teacher. Taught literally tens of thousands of New York actors of and Hollywood actors uh, how to act. And one of the things, she, she was very, very specific about blocking. And someone said, what, what, I, I can't, you're telling me what to do everywhere. And she said, I'm giving you the boundaries within which you can create. And that was very illuminating to me. And I love, I love doing that. I love having the kind of, seeing what the confinement is that I can create within. Now, with this particular <laughs> the musical. The constraint was I could have rights to anything, but it had to be balanced between John Farrar and Electric Light Orchestra. It oh, had it to be the exact one? same number of songs. In the album, if you get the original cast album of the, the oh, no cast album, a soundtrack, half of it is Electric Light Orchestra. You flip it over, the other half is John Farrar. They're not even in sync with what the story of the movie is. That's that's how. So when I first wrote it, I thought I have Electric Light Orchestra to play with. I'm in heaven because I love that stuff and I love. I could just do Turn to Stone. I could do Mr. Blue Sky. I can have all these songs in. But then the lawyers came in and said no. It has to match exactly what John Farrar has. John Farrar has two other hits besides the stuff from Xanadu. You know, he has four major hits, two of which are going to be in the Grease revival. So I didn't want to use Hopelessly Devoted to You or You're the One That I Want. So I said, okay, I can't have those. That left me with Have You Never Been Mellow and uh, another song which I really like. But when we tried it in rehearsal, uh, uh, Will a Little More Love Make It Right? And so I, I had a fabulous setting for uh, Have You Never Been Mellow, and so I kind of went with that. And then I found a very bit, a fragment of a song that's used in the movie that we expanded into a full-length number, which is called Fool. And that's in the show now. So we're, ba- we're perfectly balanced. <laughs> <laughs> and reprises don't count as a second song. Kind of interesting. Trust me, I know. The lawyers are there. <laughs> interesting when lawyers get involved in the arts, kind of almost an oxymoron. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it is, I mean, yeah, it is. It, it, but I, I was excited by the idea of having that confinement because usually when you work on a show, like I did an original musical, The Big Time, with Doug, Douglas J. Cohen, we just sit in a room and go, what do you want to do? And it was almost... And if you needed a number, you'd figure I'd out say, how to create it. Doug, write this. Yeah. It's, it's also a different... It's like a different muscle writing a musical with a living composer in the room. It's basically you write, you write, you write, and they steal. <laughs> in a good way. They'll take your monologues and their charming dialogue and it's going to wind up a lyric in a song and you have to start over again. But when it's it's a it's a song that you have to put into a a, a story, it's it's like a it's a it's a lot of work because you have to put dramatic tension in which most of these songs don't have. So you have to get into the number, try to put some kind of dramatic tension in the middle section there and then have something at the end. 
Yeah. It's you've, exhausting. You've, you've written Xanadu, which is currently in previews. You've written Little Dog Laughed, which, yes. uh, for which you got the Tony nomination. When you were a kid growing up in, is it Why You Missing Pennsylvania? Why You Missing Pennsylvania? Yeah. W-Y-O-M-I-S-S-I-N-G. That's how you pronounce it. <laughs> why You Missing Pennsylvania? Did you want to be in theater? What, what was, was it your goal to, I to did. work in theater? I always, isn't that weird? It's like, well, we, when I was, when I was young, it was the last of the generations that used to have those wonderful barn summer theaters. And there was one called oh, the Green, Green Hills Playhouse. And I'd have the New York actors come in. And we would see like Six Rooms Riverview or, or uh, uh, Room Service. You know, the kind of these like one set little plays. Or they come into the musical like, you know, Roar the Grease Paint, Smell the Crowd. That was like a unit set kind of musical. And I just loved it. I mean, I kind of would... I, you know, waited for school to be over. And I remember getting the flyer for the season, you know, with like the New York stars. They're always like currently appearing on Edge of Night, you know, and it would be like so thrilled to see, to finally see his uh, Don Quixote de la Mancha. Uh, so that was my, I loved it and I always loved it. And then as soon as I could, I started doing uh, theater in high school. Uh, and then I started doing theater in uh, community theater, which I will, I sh- really want to write about sometime because it was a, it was a very magic. But magic when you time. say when you say doing, you were acting. I was acting, and I was writing some as much as I could. There was some children's theater I was writing. I started off as an actor, and then, but I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to do both. Uh, I think it was the the Noel Coward double set album. <laughs> like I remember that. <laughs> that was like one was him in New York, and one was him in, in our studio. The other was him live in uh, Las Vegas. Was it him doing the ELO and the Jeff Ferrar material no, on each he album? Was not, no, happily he was doing his own material. <laughs> but, so that was a delight. But, but I remember that, and it was kind of great. But you went to the American Academy right. of Dramatic Arts as an actor. I did, and I graduated. I graduated very quickly. They got rid of me quick. Yes, I did. I gra- There was a weird. It was like the. Also, another. I, I seem to be showing up at the at the ends of those things. I'm sort of like, hi, what's ending? <laughs> Can I be there for it? Uh, and uh, it was it was you could actually go a first year and then go immediately into second year, so that there was a way that you could go through the entire school in 13 months. Mm-hmm. And I did it. And now it's a three year program, and you people break off for the summer. But I was, you know, it was a great. It was a wonderful – and I use something that I learned there as an actor every day that I write. But from there, as we read press on you, all of the Xanadu attention, it seems that you had a series of jobs that in some cases kept you around the theater. You were, you were, run, you were at the stage door of the yeah, Neil I was Simon. A, I, was a stage, I was a stage doorman at the Neil Simon where – uh, my nickname was Pops. I was like 24, <laughs> and they called me Pops. And uh, I did uh, uh, Derek Jacoby, Breaking the Code. I did uh, The End of Biloxi Blues. You say, did he mean as a doorman? As a doorman. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I didn't. I wasn't. I was unhirable as an actor. As a doorman, I was a sensation. Um, I was used to, also used to run the – there's an elevator in the back that Marvin Krauss, who was a wonderful old Broadway character – and he used to come in. I used to take him up in the elevator. And uh, and then when I had my first plays in New York, I would get written up. But I would still have to be a doorman because I couldn't earn any money. And Marvin Krauss would come up in the elevator and go, you need to advertise. <laughs> and that was like his, his – And up you'd go. And off I'd go. And off I'd go. And he was right. I did need to advertise. And you were also <laughs> working at the drama bookshop? Then I would work – the, the three jobs I did were headsets, the infrared headsets for the hearing impaired. 
I bartended briefly with Aaron Sorkin and Cameron Mannheim. Mm. Cameron Mannheim, who's, I'm just going to say right now, her fingers were in that cash drawer. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I can't tell you. And then I got, she, I would get fired. They'd say, like, you're short. I'm like, it's Cameron Mannheim. She's got sticky fingers. And I, when I was, she was, I saw it at an Emmy Awards one time. I said, did you steal from the, I forget what the name of the company. It was Refreshments Associates or something. Did you steal from the, she goes, oh, all the time. Like, <laughs> I got fired because of it. She goes, well, I'm glad you got out of it. All right, so I did that. I was bartender with Aaron Sorkin and Cameron Mannheim. And then I would do uh, headsets, but this was a way for me to see all the shows. So I could I saw Fences like fifty times. I saw Madeline Kahn do um, uh, Born Yesterday maybe twenty five, thirty times because I would do headsets. And then you would see every show, and then you could see it again and again and again. And then you would fight to get like a really great theater that would be a fascinating show to learn from. Like I actually, you know, fought to get and I could not get the to do the infrared headsets during the previews of Jerome Robbins Broadway because I just wanted to like, you know, soak it all in. But and I did that and then I did Drama Bookshop, which was a huge help for me because they had a policy of I could take any play home that I wanted to overnight and read it so that I would know it to recommend it to people so that consequently I could read. You know, without much of a college education, I managed to read, like, the complete works of Tennessee Williams, the complete works of Eugene O'Neill, without any sense of what was the good stuff and what was the bad stuff. I just had to make the judgment on my own. So these jobs had some very good fringe benefits for an aspiring they young great, writer. I, I, I was telling somebody just the other day, I was uh, I was the doorman on the uh, – they put two O'Neill plays in rep one summer. And it didn't make money. Can you believe it? It was Long Day's Journey into Night in All Wilderness with Colleen Dewhurst and Jason Robards. Mm. And Colleen, because she was, you know, she was not a spry little chick at the time, I would kind of sneak her up in the elevator. So we became friends. And she would just, she would read stuff I'd written. And she would kind of give me notes. And she'd say, write me a juicy comedy. You know, <laughs> and, and it was just, it was a wonderful it's time. And then I, you know, the Tonys, I got to walk up to Vanessa Redgrave and go, hi. She goes, I know you. I go, I was the doorman on Orpheus Descending. <laughs> she goes, oh. She goes, she goes, oh, I said, I'm up for a Tony for best play this year. And she goes, oh, so you're still in it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Vanessa. That's funny. Comrade. Well, did you ever get work in New York as an actor or did you go straight to becoming a writer? I, I wrote a play for myself and Annabella Sciorra, which we did as a little play uh, on at the Jan Hus Playhouse. Remember the Jan Hus Playhouse? It was a great old theater on the Upper East Side, the basement of a church. Um, <laughs> and they used to have a soup kitchen during rehearsals. So they'd be like homeless people eating soup while you're like giving notes. <laughs> Good times all around. And I quickly got – I knew that what I loved was re- creating the stuff and the rehearsals. I love that so much. So that – gave way to to me just uh just writing on a, and 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 then it was a long time i was did the ASCAP workshop and all that stuff and musical theater so it was a long way and then suddenly it just uh i was trying to find how i could write and what i could write and then uh, i don't know how it happened but a coin dropped and i just suddenly got like oh i can do this um reading paul rudnick who was who had left Playwriting. He had had a bad experience with playwriting and left and started writing novels. And I started reading his novels, and they kind of inspired me. So what was the big break? Was it Advice from a Caterpillar getting advice picked up? Advice from a Caterpillar was, was the first one. And then it was Advice from a Caterpillar. Then I had a show called White Lies. And then I had um, my play The Country Club, which Ulu Grossbard was going to direct. And they were, that all happened within a month. 
Wow. And it was, and it was, but it was, what I loved was it was a comedy, a drama, and a musical. All happened within, um, and it was, that I suddenly realized that I could do it, like I could make it happen. But you mentioned the country club been supposed to be directed by Lou Grossbart. Did that happen right away? No, it was, it was, it was optioned. It, he eventually uh, dropped it, and then it happened later at a drama department. But, I did and Long Chris Wharf Ashley. before that? Long Wharf, at, right. It was done at Long Wharf, and then with Chris Ashley directing, and then it was done at the uh, drama department with uh, Cynthia Nixon, Tom Everett Scott, and Amy Sedaris. And Callie Thorne, good group of people. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to do that play again. I want to rewrite it. I want to fix it. I want to make it different. What, what do you want to change? Why? Because so I many writers say they don't want it. I don't. Well, some things I don't. Some things I'm like, oh, that's over. I think the Country Club is the one play I would like to rewrite, just because it, oddly, it was my first play, and I set it aside, and then I brought it back, and then I tried to update it, and it really was about the sort of patrician Republican upper class letting go and seeing what was becoming the Republican Party. And that was sort of a... And by the time I wrote it, we were well into the second Clinton administration. So it just seemed like, who cares about what they're, what they're dealing with was, you know, fought 10 years ago. Well, you say these these three all happened at the same time. What year would that have been? Late 90s then? I, uh, that would have been early uh, 90s. Early 90s. Because then I was... I had that... Like, uh, Advice from a Catapult was 91. Uh-huh. Then I had them all sort of happen in their own ways and fall apart in their own ways. And then I uh, started uh, babysitting friends' children. <laughs> it was a, what they called a Manny in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I was a Manny, uh, including I used to babysit Chuck Schumer's daughter. So there, glamorous. Uh, and then and then from that, they all the families took their kids away for spring break, and I knew I had like 11 days to myself, so I wrote a screenplay, and that was to Wong Fu, and then I sold that to Spielberg, and then Everyone thought I was a film genius, and people would come up and say, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I realized what I wanted to do was theater, so I sort of parlayed that into theater. Well, in that per- when in that period did you and others create the drama department? Because we really should talk about that company that, well, that you began. Yeah, that, that company came uh, out of that, what I had just mentioned, was I wanted to do theater. It was, Cynthia, it was started by Cynthia Nixon, Mike Rosenberg, and me. Uh we were the three people coming back and we're on a upstate car trip and said, let's do this. Let's make this happen. And then we just sort of called all of our friends and just said, let's do theater for the pure experience of just doing theater. And of course, as often happens, it's for the pure experience of doing theater. Listen, we're getting a lot of commercial runs. Uh, so what happened is like all the shows just took off and it was a wonderful, exhilarating time. The first couple of years of Drama Department was great. But I read somewhere that Cynthia Nixon was rather skeptical at first when you first popped the idea. Oh, she totally. I was, we were well into the company. We had like our third success and she did confess. Like, I was just playing along because I didn't want to say no to you. I really didn't. <laughs> I thought, you know, he's got a movie career going. Why is he going to sacrifice that for fall off Broadway? What is he, nuts? <laughs> Evidently I was. So what, what, what was the first production then? First production was a revival of Kingdom of Earth in which I gave everyone freaked out because the first production I did, I gave a musical comedy actor a break as the director of a Tennessee Williams play, and it was John Cameron Mitchell. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that worked out well. And that was with Cynthia Nixon and uh, an actor who came in from a from an open audition, Peter Sarsgaard. And uh, it was a tr- – and that was the first – like I knew there was a sensibility at work. We were all on the same page when we did the very first reading of the play before Peter was involved just with Cynthia and John Johnny Mitchell. And we read it and – 
I said, you know what stinks about this play is the best part of it are the stage directions. That's the best writing. I was like, what can you do with a play like that? And then we did the second reading, and John Cameron Mitchell had Tennessee Williams on stage just saying all the stage directions while the things were set up, and it was hilarious and brilliant, and it was great. Well, I'm curious. It seems to have started as a bit of a collective, but you did take that title, artistic director, and and how did how did the company work? Was it really you deciding what they would do, or was it, was it more of a group no, approach? No, the idea was that anyone could bring any project up, and I just kind of... And I just would just keep pushing them. I would keep pushing people like, let's do a reading. Let's do a reading. Let's do a public reading. Let's get it out there. Let's get it going. It was about me trying to make people a little more confident in what they could do and and just saying, like, you can do it. Let's do a reading. Let's do it. Why are you sitting around going, oh, you know, someday someone should. Just do it. Just start it. And from that, like, uh, one actor brought in uh, June Moon and we did a reading of it. And it was really good, and I really loved it. Mark Nelson, who was reading one of the parts, said, I would love to direct this. And that became the play, and we just kind of just, whoever was in the room, let's do it. You know, let's get a theater. It just became that sort of an event. And we would do, we're very involved with public readings, the idea of, of reading stuff and trying it out in front of people. And then eventually, the other projects, people would say, like, I don't want to do it here. I, I, I Thank you for giving me the confidence in the project. I want to go do it over at uh Vineyard. I want to do it at the at Roundabout. I'm like, great. Because it was only ever just to try to get theater going. And then once you get a board, they start saying like, hey, you're giving all your stuff away. Well, as that reality came in, did it give you a different perspective as a writer to act, at least in part, as a producer? It was incredibly eye-opening to me. It was just great. It was just great to see... To be in the to actually see what are the requirements. It was great for me to talk to writers about writing a play from the inside, which you never get to do as a writer. You actually kind of, you know, work with Charles Bush or 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 Warren Light or or uh, Kenny Lonergan and actually just talk to them about plays. Like, how do they how do they solve that problem? How do you solve this problem? Like to say, like, I'm not quite getting this. Or do you mean to be saying this? You know, it was a it was a remarkable and wonderful situation, and it was. And it's certainly taught me a lot about a business demeanor, which I think I would have been a lot more of a snooty diva artist if I didn't understand there's a lot more at work. There's a lot more at stake. There's a lot more people depending on you doing your job correctly. Well, you're you're driving back from upstate New York in a car. You pop this idea. Let's start this thing. Let's call it yeah, you know, drama, drama department, department whatever yeah. we're going to call it. And let's do some shows. My dad has a barn. Let's put on a yeah. show. It was How do like you get this. from the idea in the car to actually having created it? Well, that was the wonderful thing. I thought I, I thought it was complete serendipity that uh, we went to Equity, uh-huh. and I said, I want to do plays. Uh, and they said, you can do showcases for about two or three years. I said, great. The rule is the actors don't get paid, but... You have the limit is fifteen thousand dollars. That's the most you can spend on the whole show. Then I called uh, my credit card, and my limit was fifteen thousand dollars. And I said, "This is absolutely <laughs> it's meant to be." So the first show was I knew I'd go over budget when they'd call when the card wouldn't go through. So so you do that like for two or three years, and it was what it was. The reason the first three years were so filled with explosion it was you, I was going to amazing theater artists like J. Smith Cameron, Cynthia Nixon, uh, and saying, or Richard Greenberg, and saying, like, what play do you love? 
And there would be these obscure plays that people wouldn't know. And they would say, oh, how about this play? How about this play? So they were like everyone's hidden dream. So that's why something like Uncle Tom's Cabin could happen, which was a huge success for us, because because uh, one, one of the directors in the company said, I'm fascinated with Uncle Tom's Cabin. I'm fascinated with the expression. And I love that it's a huge part as Americans. It's a huge part of our theater history. For like, you know, 100 years, Uncle Tom's Cabin was the play done everywhere and not in a actual script form. It was people kind of throwing them together. And I love that. And so those things became exciting to me. But then, you know, as you kind of get on with it for a while, suddenly like all those ideas are going out and suddenly you're like, you know, you're looking down and you've got three slots and you're going, I've got to fill three slots. And how do I do that? I can't do that. And if... If Hope Davis isn't calling me and saying, you know what play I want to do, or you know, so it became it becomes very difficult. So you're you're a, a young guy with a credit card. How'd you get everybody else psyched up? How'd you get them involved? How'd you get a theater? How'd you get, get the whole thing rolling? Other uh, than running the talking, credit card. I mean, if you talk intelligent to a theater uh-huh. person, they're on. I mean, that's a, that's why I, one of the many things I love about theater people is their game for just about anything that's. Sounds like a good artistic theatrical experience. And they're on for any kind of esprit de corps good thing. And also, they're also there for any type of uh, political or social ill that needs to be fixed. They're there. I mean, that's just that's just who they are because they spend so much of their time empathizing, trying to figure out how other people feel. They become very attuned to how other people feel. Um, so getting people... In- wasn't that much. Finding a space was we went all over New York and we just found a settlement house that had a tiny theater that we could take over and I loved. And then the budgets got to be more and more and we had to pay the actors more and suddenly we were out raising money and we have a board and all that stuff. Hmm. It's just tough. It's exhausting. And in the midst of all of this, you created what for many playwrights would be a dream, which was a theater where your work can be done. And first up, I guess, in this was As Bees and Honey Drown. Yeah, As Bees and Honey was the first play. It was the first play I did there. And that and that actually was going to be a commercial production that had fallen through. And I just said, fine. Because I, I actually was... I actually did not want, because I was so afraid that people thought it was my vanity company, that I didn't want to produce anything of my own work there. Mm. I just wanted to encourage all these other fun plays. And... Uh, and it just happened. It fell through. I said, well, let's do it. And Mark Brokaw was going to direct it. And and we ended up doing it with Jay Smith Cameron, who was in the company. It was actually written for another actress who who dropped out. And uh, and it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. And it was great. And it was a magic, magic time. And that, of course, then did ultimately go to a commercial production. Yeah. Ran for a year. It, it broke like a couple of, of records for like uh, American plays. And it's done all over the country which I don't have a sense of because I just get checks and that's it. That's only how it happens. And you go, like, oh, it's a good, it's a good month for bees. <laughs> um, and then I'll, but I'll be in, like I'll be in Atlanta on something and suddenly I'll just walk by and someone has an as bees and honey drowned t-shirt on. I'm like, what? <laughs> so no, we did it at my high school. It's at high school? Jeez, where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the basic uh, storyline? It's about a uh, woman who meets a young writer uh, who's just appeared in a magazine and thinks that he's wonderful and decides that he's the man to write the story of her life. And as the story progresses, he realizes that she's a con artist and she's living off of his credit card. And uh, what she does is she opens the magazine every month and find out who's 
the news star because he knows that that person, everyone's so desperate to do anything. They'll put up with any – their logic is gone at that time. And it's a great part for a great actress. Now, the drama department really began 94, 95. Is that about right? Yeah. Is it still a going concern? It is, an, uh, it is not right now. Uh, Mike Rosenberg, we had a very hilarious situation where we were actually had a nice three – we actually, I said, let's just take the time off and get a season together the way we used to. And Patty Clarkson had a play that she loved, and Warren Light had a play he loved, and and I had uh, a new play. And I said, all right, we've got three plays. Let's do it. Let's do a season like we used to, the, the good old days. Let's go out and raise the money. And whilst we were in debt, so Mike, we got ourselves out of debt. And Mike Rosenberg had a meeting with. Uh, Kelly Gonda of East of Doheny. The producers the, of Grey Gardens. <clears throat> the producers of Grey Gardens and said, I have this idea. And she was so impressed with his pitch that she hired him to run her company. <laughs> so it was like, a, so we went out and I was like, you know, Mike, I think you have to do this. Um, the, we had just finished doing uh, The Cartels, which was oddly so far my idyllic theater Experience. Well, you have to explain because it was also an atypical theater it experience. It was completely atypical. It was a soap opera. And I would write it on a Wednesday and we'd print it up and get it to the actors on Thursday. They'd have it over the weekend. We'd come in on Monday. It was done in a bar uh, and they read off cue cards. And, but it was because it was it was four episodes and it was but it was, you know, Joanna Gleason and Peter Frechette and Katie Huffman and it was like a big dynasty parody and it was a blast and I loved it and I could and it was the purest like from what I thought was funny to it being said in front of an audience it was the fastest turnaround <laughs> and the actors were so game and they were the best they were the best actors like you couldn't believe how great they were you know my favorite was Jason uh, Butler Harner played the the son but like a huge part of the soap opera on his night off from doing Coast of Utopia. Like, mm. that's that person. He loves theater too damn much. <laughs> so you did that, but then, as you say, Michael Rosenberg has got the job now with yeah. East of Doheny. So will we see more drama department I productions? I think we will. I think we will. I think we're, I would try to figure out what that's going to be, like what the context is. I mean, I, because of uh, Little Dog and because of Xanadu and then my next couple projects, uh, they seem to be more Broadway-centered. And I'm... I'm really enjoying figuring out Broadway right now because I just love it so much. It's just a great world. And it is so different. And it's it's different in a way. And I love the the audiences are actually a little more uh, unruly. In a, in a, somehow the down, you would think the downtown audiences would be hipper and cooler, which they're intellectually maybe a little sharper, but they're actually kind of, you know exactly what they're going to laugh at and what they're going to get and not what they're going to get. Well, Whereas Broadway's is a huge mix. It's just all, everything. It's like people in berets and, you know, as the great uh, Penn and Teller says, it's I love Broadway. It's people of blue hairs of both variety. You get the punkers <laughs> with blue hair and you get the old ladies with blue hair. So with these, with um, Little Dog Laughed, of course, you started right. off-Broadway yeah. at second stage right. and then it moved. So what did you learn? Uh, it helps to have a movie star. <laughs> don't open and don't open November. Open later in the year. <laughs> open around, you know. I mean, there are there are many things I learned. Uh, and I I wouldn't have traded. I wouldn't 
really trade a second of the experience because it was a glor- It was a great, great experience. And it's funny because Julie White, in her Tony acceptance speech, said you had to be talked into casting her. Well, yeah, I mean that's yeah. And 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 interestingly, you just commented that. Uh, as uh, as bees and honey drowned, Jay Smith Cameron was not the original choice for Roland. Of course, yeah. it became a signature role yeah. for her. Oh, it's it's yeah. It's, I mean, that's that's the thing that is so interesting. When when Xanadu was happening, uh, Jane Krakowski did the last workshop, and then she could not do it because of her television schedule. Period. We knew when she did the workshop, she had a TV schedule. It was not like Jay. Now could you? But it became this thing that was written up in articles everywhere. And I go everything I've ever written. Billy Crudup dropped out of the country club two weeks before we started rehearsal, and Tom Everett Scott did it. You didn't write out about it. You didn't read about that because it was at the Greenwich House in the Greenwich Village. It was in a tiny 99-seat theater. Who knew? Uh, you know, I mean, it's it, it always happens. And with Jay, it was very different than the original actress, who was Patty Clarkson, Patricia Clarkson. So it was very glamorous, and suddenly became like a... I said, just sort of like English cheerleader coming into the role, and she was great. And uh, I wrote uh, a little dog laugh for Cynthia Nixon, who uh, who dropped out to do uh, Rabbit Hole, which I guess worked out well for her. Um, <laughs> she's very happily, and it was and it was all done with great love and total understanding. Like it was, you know, she's like, "This is this part," and I said, "I get, I get it." Um, and then, so Julie is completely wrong for the part that I had originally written. She was, it is supposed to, what I had originally written, it was very chopped up. And she was much more of like a, the original role of Diane was much more of just this shadowy narrator who would just sort of show up. Like her original speech at the top of Little Dog Laugh, which is a nice big speech, was broken up into four sections and actually happened throughout the first three scenes. But when it was Julie, I knew suddenly it was this big, warm, southern gal who had this big personality. I knew I'm going to have to rewrite it. So I had to shove those scenes together. So it was this huge speech just that was like, hello, look at me. I'm the star of the show. And we put everybody in a great mood. Is is that your usual process, writing with certain actors in mind? Yeah, I mean, I I I can't believe I said <laughs> Jackie Hoffman, who's in Xanadu, teases me that I actually wrote Mary Testa and Jackie Hoffman. I wrote the parts of Melpomene and Calliope, the, the evil muses, for them. And I said it's the first time I've actually written a part for someone, and they've done it. <laughs> to which they responded, "Well, you've finally gone down the ladder enough that someone who will do anything you write." <laughs> Jackie's very self-deprecating, but my new play was written for. Uh, for uh, two actors who, you know, just about a month ago said that they can't do it. So you kind of go and you find somebody else. Well, is there a certain inherent danger then in visualizing certain actors doing it that they can't? <laughs> no, because it gets the job. It, it gets it on a page for me. And uh-huh. then, you know, it's it, uh, and it, 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 it lets me go, like, what would this person do here? What would this person do here? And it does, it puts it in a certain reality and a form. Which I love. So my next play is just, just just two actors, rather than just creating a character in your mind without visualizing a particular name attached to it. Well, I actor. do that. I mean, I do that sometimes. Do. And sometimes I have two or three different people going on in my mind. Uh-huh. You know, like I or I'll have a, a version of like I would like this actor, but I imagine this actor if he were like handsome and blonde, as opposed to you know if he were dashing. If this guy was, or I want this character to sound like you know, like an old movie. You know, or like you know, for the Xanadu, it's the I wanted the muses to sound like 
you know, an Edith Hamilton translation of a play. I wanted to sound like bad classical theater. But then you're forced to basically rework some of these shows in order to accommodate the person who is then cast. Well, writing it's, comes easy to me, so it's not that arduous uh, a task. And, it, and it's only, and sometimes it's huge work, and sometimes it's minor work. Sometimes you just then go like, oh, I just have to change this, I have to change that. It's a, it's a, you're fitting everything a little bit. I mean, I had a, a wonderful, uh, I, I go into the theater chat rooms sometimes. Uh, daily, um, because, <laughs> because I'm fascinated with what people come away with, even if it's incredibly stupid. I'm fascinated that someone actually thought that. And there was, there's an actor who's on who's on now in because there's an understudy on in the role of Sonny, the male lead, because our lead has a broken foot. So this understudy's on, and Cheyenne is coming in, and they're two completely different guys. And someone said, I can't imagine Cheyenne doing this part because this part is of this short, nerdy guy. And I'm going, isn't that hilarious that that's what the part is? The words are exactly the same. I haven't changed the word. But it's a start because this guy is a little shorter and a little, you know, he's from San Antonio, Texas. He's just a regular guy that that suddenly is what the part is. And the other guy can't play that part. So there is different actors saying lines differently. So the guy didn't change very much of of bees comparatively. Little Dog I did. But I was also structural. Like I was also like interested in doing something that wasn't that theatrical. So I had to alter that. But also the guy who has been doing Andre Watts is not short and nerdy. He's well built. And Oh, on, now Andre, Andre Ward who did it. Ward. No, we're on our, see, we're on our second understudy because oh. we're trying out all the understudies oh, okay. too. <laughs> so the first one was a uh, six foot, a hundred, a six foot three, a hundred and seventy pound African American guy and this another guy is short so it's like suddenly all the part becomes different well it? it's the um, six foot African American guy that I saw yes then <laughs> okay. you saw Andre yes Andre, Andre yes. Right. Yes, it was a great way to see the show poor Carrie Butler she goes I actually feel like a muse who's been around for a thousand years <laughs> every time I look at a man whoever it is I'm inspiring him I just don't know who it's going to be next time <laughs> you commented that you write easily and normally this is the point in the interview where we say well tell us what you're going to do next but your playbill bio already tells us about it looks like two musicals and a play, the Mister and Mrs. Fitch. Yeah, that that title keeps changing. I, I put that title in the playbill. This is so hilarious because I just wanted to see how it would look there. And how do you feel about it? I feel on the fence. I, the original title is "It Don't Follow Me." I'm lost too, which I'm sick of. Every designer I work with says I can't list your titles anymore. They're so long they take up my whole bio. Can you come <laughs> up with a shorter title? So my next play is called "The Nance." Two words. The Nance. But this is uh, Don't Follow Me. That's going to be done uh, at second stage. We're casting it right now. And Scott Ellis will direct that. And that'll happen, ooh, hopefully uh, January-ish. And uh, Jordan Roth wants to, to work on that show also. So we'll let him. And, and what, what is that about? Jordan, it's about a husband and wife gossip columnists. Uh, I wanted to do a play because I, my plays have been so broken up into little scenes that I wanted to do something where it was two people walk in a room and they stay in the room until it's resolved and then they leave. So it's a two-character play and it's a husband-wife gossip columnist who uh, decide not to leave their apartments and go out anymore and just invent gossip, start making things up and start creating people and how that becomes hugely popular until people want to find these people to celebrate them and then they have to, all the excitement that happens from that. And what about the musicals? Oh, my God. Well, first, the big one is the bandwagon. That I'm doing for the Fran and the Barry the Weisler, who 
actually, I'm having a great time with. <laughs> no, it's like everyone says, so you're working with the Weissers. Do you get combat pay? How's that work? I'm having the time of my life. It was the first I, – I did a draft that was very loyal to the movie and Barry hated it and said, like, I didn't want you to just – do the movie. I want you to do what you do for a play. Just do it for this musical. And then I got to have a, a little meeting with uh, Betty Comden and she gave me some of the scenes that were cut from the original screenplay. See, the reason I was interested in this along the lines of what Xanadu is, it's an incomplete film. Their Comden and Green's contract was up so they just left. So that's why in the movie, suddenly they just start doing all these numbers at the end with no plot. <laughs> second act not, troubles again. <laughs> they're second act troubles in a movie. That's just tough. <laughs> uh, and in one of the scenes, there was a reference to the Nanette Fabre character saying that she had had an affair with the Fred Astaire character. And I was like, that's interesting. They were lovers, and now they're coming back. And so I started writing this play that would somehow shatter time a little bit. And it's about... It actually takes place in the, the 30s, takes place in the 50s, and then at the very end it takes place in the present day where they're doing a revival of the bandwagon and the cast is coming back. So it's all about time and about theater and life in the theater. And did, did you go back to the original 1930s show, which was really a, a review? That's a review. Yeah, that's a review. a review. My God, this man knows. Look at this. <laughs> He's no novice here. He knows the bandwagon. Yeah, and the score is Dietz and Schwartz, which is really great great music and I got they did get to you know I got to open to go through all the stuff and there are a couple of great numbers Dancing in the Dark obviously Dancing in the Dark which I think may become the title now because it's uh-huh. so different from the movie I'm, I'm afraid now I mean with Xanadu I could be different from the movie and people just loved me if I go so different from the movie on Bandwagon I think they may want but it's a great score. It's a and, great uh, score. Right. Will, you be, will you be adding it. any other Schwartz and Dietz songs into it, Dina? Oh, yeah, tons. From from outside of yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the movie? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're putting in uh, Something to Remember You By, mm-hmm. which is not in the movie that much. And, uh, yeah, it's got, it's got a full it's, – it's a, it's a very rich score. It's rich music. It's beautiful music. I love mm-hmm. it. And that's going to be at the Old Globe in – I'll be – that's really like a talk show now. I'll be at the Old Globe in February <laughs> and then hopefully be coming in the next fall. And so what's Lysistrata Jones? Lysistrata Jones was, uh, uh, it's a, it was sort of a bridge into Xanadu-ish, but it's a, it's a, I wanted to do Lysistrata, I wanted to do a, a classic story set in a very contemporary terms. So it's, uh, it's actually about basketball. It's about cheerleaders and basketball players. And it's this basic story of Lysistrata told in a contemporary college. Of, and uh, it's just a big, fun Show and Chris Ashley's going to work on that, so probably will be at La Jolla. I'm just saying that's where he is now. An original score, original score by, by Lewis Flynn, my partner, who was also did the score for uh, uh, Little Dog Laughed and got a television series out of that. How about that? He got them. He got this like one of those big primetime game shows. Came to see uh, Little Dog and said, "Oh, we love it. It's so tense. We love the music. Can you come do our game show?" So we ended up getting. <laughs> I said, everybody works off my work but me. <laughs> yeah, let's try. It's good. It's a good score. So I'm very proud of it. Well, it's talking about television. Any any television or Hollywood in, in your future? Or is it I've got, I'm supposed to develop a series for Lauren Michaels. Uh, the Cartels was actually me starting to work on something, but NBC freaked out about how political it was. So I started doing that as live theater. And, uh, and my favorite was one of the reviews in one of the papers said, you know, you look at this. And you wonder, why isn't this on television? <laughs> like, I can tell you why, because <laughs> they freaked out. And then I did, uh, 
And then, so I've got to do with Lauren Michaels, and then I've, you know, there'll be a movie of, of Little Dog, which I'm trying to put together right now with Julian Scott. Um, and continue. To, I love movies. I, I, don't, I find them irritating. Working on them is irritating. I love writing them, but working on them is irritating. Theater's all joy. <laughs> Sounds like you have a pretty full plate. And um, one of the lines that you had uh, in Xanadu, to love somebody else and create art, that is Xanadu. Sounds like you found, it's the highest found, achievement. found, it's you, the highest you found achievement. your own Xanadu. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that came out of my relationship with Lewis. And we have two kids now and just sitting there and going, you know, this is about as good. I don't want to tempt Zeus. <laughs> but but I when I was writing Xanadu, I kept saying, people would say, like, what is Xanadu? And I'm like, I don't know. It's this house or something. It's it's Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. I don't and then I thought, well, let's make it up. Let's make up what Xanadu is. And I, to, to create art and love someone is the most you kind of hope for. And I think that really is kind of like a high achievement for human beings. And I think it's great. And, I, and it, I, I'm actually hearing back from people that they're actually moved by that. And actually it is something they didn't realize they were looking for it in their lives. And that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, Xanadu is currently in previews, opens July 10th at the Helen Hayes Theater here in New York. And Doug, thanks Pending so much. Pending no further accidents. <laughs> Nobody else breaks a foot. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm worn out. <laughs> Doug, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Great to meet you guys. Thanks, Doug. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing, more than 400 hours of it, is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.